And now, for your feature presentation. One, or two, or three, or four, but five, force five. Hello and welcome to the Force 5 Podcast. I am your host, ex-video store clerk and wannabe screenwriter, Jason Kleberg. Today's guest is the extremely talented filmmaker, Jennifer Reeder, whose most recent work can be found in the anthology film, VHS 94, and we're gonna talk top five wicked women. Oh, there are some really great picks on both of our lists. I am excited for you to hear the conversation we had. Now, last week's topic with Luke Cheney was top five diegetic songs, and a ton of people chimed in across the different social media platforms, so I wanted to shout out some of the more unique suggestions from listeners. Beef DeLomo says, Star Wars Cantina Band. That's a good one that was not mentioned on the show. Bubba Big Bucks, Bubba Big Bucks says, basically any underground club scene in the late 90s, early 2000s sci-fi movies like Underworld, Matrix, and Blade. A user disregard my opinion. Uh, I'm not gonna do that, but he, he or she says, my favorite diegetic song in a movie is the use of Non Genere Get Rien in Inception, where in the dream they can hear it in their headphones, but it is slowed down due to their different experience of time, which is another great one that I didn't think of. Wataji says, actually, No Country for Old Men does have music. And <laughs> I have no idea what that means, but thanks for playing. And finally, uh, Pita Beta, who's been on the show before from the middle class film class, says, that thing you do. Uh, Scotty doesn't know from Eurotrip, which I was just kicking myself for not remembering that one, because god damn, that's a great song and a great moment in Eurotrip. Stand out, uh, Eye to Eye from a goofy movie. Please, Mr. Kennedy from Inside Lewin Davis, and Man of Constant Sorrow in Oh Brother Where Art Thou. If you want some airtime, I will ask next week on Twitter, Reddit, and Instagram who your favorite wicked women were. So just engage and your comment might make it to the show. Now I did watch a few things this week, but I'm only really gonna do an in-depth review for one because my conversation with Miss Reader went pretty long and I don't wanna cut off any of her thoughts. So I'm just going to review the new Joe Carnahan film, Cop Shop. I'm invisible, that's where I'm gonna be. But I got heat all over me, I'm not telling you where I am. <laughs> what are you gonna arrest me? What are you people, please arrest me. You're under arrest. So why were you looking to get locked up, Theodore? Everyone's trying to kill me. They nearly killed us. What'd you do? I did what I had to do. To get to you, Teddy. The legendary Bob Vidic. You're a psychopath. I'm a professional. You pissed off the wrong people. I'm gonna kill you. Drop that gun. No one kills anyone in here. A con artist intentionally gets himself arrested thinking that it'll keep him safe from the ruthless hitmen that are on his trail. Unfortunately for him and the cops inside of the station, it won't. How much cop could a cop shop shop if a cop shop could shop cop? I really like Joe Carnahan as a creative. Looking at films like Boss Level and Smoke and Aces as examples, he films wild, over-the-top action really well, and he always combines that with very interesting, flavorful characters. And Cop Shop is no different. Like Assault on Precinct 13, we have an African-American police officer who's trying to get people out safely, but unlike most Siege films, the participants are all already inside of the building. 
Alexis Louder plays Valerie Young, the police officer, and she is really great as this confident, smart gunslinger. She has a calm demeanor about her, even while she's in grave danger, and that makes her so interesting to watch on screen. If you're looking for a film featuring a strong female protagonist, look no further. The con artist locked up in one of the police station cells is Teddy Moretto, the world's worst shot. He's interesting in that you don't really know what his motives are or what he's capable of until later on in the film, played enigmatically by the always fantastic Frank Grillo. Gerard Butler rounds out the main three as the vicious bulldog Bob Vidic, a man just chomping at the bit for a shot at Teddy's forehead. I have a big soft spot for Gerard Butler. I don't know exactly why, but I just love watching the man on screen. The story moves along in a propulsive pace, which can be hard to do in a film that all takes place in one location. I thought it was pretty well written, with the exception of some final third messiness and a familiar action movie trope of people shooting a thousand bullets and somehow not hitting anything but walls and stacks of paper, but those small complaints didn't really ruin the movie for me. I thought the tone was uh, more like a mature smoking aces, but not by much, which I was perfectly fine with. Anthony Lamb, a psychopathic hitman played by Toby Huss, was a good source of comedy in the back half of the film. He got a few lines that made me laugh out loud while I was watching this by myself. The violence has an exploitative quality that's right up my alley while never being overtly gross. I only really have minor complaints about the film. I didn't necessarily have a problem with Frank Grillo's character, but he took to Instagram to both defend Joe Carnahan and to mention that a lot of his character development was cut. I also think that they could have developed the relationship between Valerie and Bob a bit more. Hopefully, we can see the Carnahan cut someday, but it sounds like there was some studio meddling. I don't think the studio was responsible for the CGI fire, however, which looked absolutely terrible. Overall, I enjoyed Cop Shop. It's a brisk siege movie with a cool setting, colorful characters, and a fun, exploitative vibe. The last 10 minutes weren't great, and the third act in general could have used some retooling, specifically the last five minutes, but overall I thought it was really fun. I'm looking forward to what Alexis Louder does next because she was amazing, and Toby Huss is now on my radar as well because he stole every scene he was in as the hilarious Balloon Man Psycho. If you like over-the-top action films, Joe Carnahan stuff, or siege movies like Assault on Precinct 13, I think you'll find this a good sit. One thing my three-year-old is obsessed with right now is dinosaurs. And honestly, who's not obsessed with dinosaurs? They're amazing. Wait, Kleberg, did you say are? Shouldn't you be saying were amazing? Nope, because today's sponsor has made the impossible possible. Welcome to Jurassic World. Located on Isla Nublar, which I've been told translates to Nublar Island, this state-of-the-art theme park allows you to see all of your favorite dinosaurs up close and personal while maintaining the highest of safety standards. Marvel at the size of the Brontosaurus, take a ride on a Pachycephalosaurus, or help feed the T-Rex. And if you've got little ones, head over to Camp Cretaceous for the day and hang out with the smaller, safer breeds. Go to the Jurassic World website and put in the promo code F5, that's F and the number five, and you'll get a ticket for free with the purchase of a day pass. That's right, buy one, get one free. Don't stop to think if you should, book today because the summer schedule is filling up. Jurassic World, life finds a way. Welcome back to the Force 5 podcast. Tonight, I'm joined by Jennifer Reeder. She's the writer and director of the feature-length film Signature Move and Knives and Skin, and whose most recent work, Holy Hell, can be found in the new anthology film VHS 94. Jennifer, how are you tonight? 
I'm good. Thanks for having me, Jason. Thanks for coming on. Um, and I have to ask this, aside from your own film, what's your other favorite segment in VHS 94? Oh, I'll tell you something. I love Timo's section so dearly. I mean, I think that, um, I think he is absolutely, you know, someone, I mean, people are already watching him, but I think, you know, if you're looking internationally for, you know, who is making really major moves in the kind of horror genre internationally, or specifically in Jakarta, Indonesia, like <laughs> Timo's been doing it for a while. So I love Timo's section. Um, but I have to say that I also deeply appreciate, um, you know, Chloe's section storm drain, you know, it was really nice to actually um, share space with another woman in the VHS sphere were the first female directors um, in the franchise. Oh, wow. I had no idea. I did not realize that you two were the first. That's awesome. Congratulations. Thanks. Now, you've said in, in interviews before that a lot of your work has been influenced by the two Davids. Of course, those are Lynch and Cronenberg. What are some of your favorite works of theirs before we get into our list topic today? Well, in particular, you know, I would say that Holy Hell in VHS 94 was directly inspired by Videodrome, which I think is, yeah. you know, one of my favorite Cronenbergs. I would, I mean... Look, really, that might be hard to detect in the final pro in the, in the final in the final um, you know iteration of VHS ninety four. What I wrote and what I shot was um, quite a bit more elaborate than you know kind of what made it onto screen. But you know, I get that the wraparound in particular has to be in service to the shorts, and so there's some really awesome scenes that that got cut out of um of holy hell um that might have made the cronenberg reference and in particular the the videodrome reference more um more obvious but nonetheless i i love um yeah i love that i love um scanners is um something that's become kind of influential to me as i am writing um a kind of like super empathetic, like super or su super empath kind of shapeshifter story. Um, yeah. And then in terms of, you know, David Lynch, I think that, uh, you know, I'm maybe an outlier uh, in the, in the, in this, in this camp. I love Lost Highway. I think like Lost Highway is really my, my favorite um, Lynch film. And it's one that's, uh, not even like polarizing. I just think that it's one that's not necessarily on everybody's radar. And I actually had the the deep honor to shoot a film this summer in Chicago with Neil Edelstein, who produced Mulholland Drive. And, you know, Mulholland oh, Drive cool. Mulholland Drive is, of course, I mean, gosh, I mean, I could go on and on and say, I love Mulholland Drive. I love, <laughs> um, I love, you know, Wild at Heart. I love um, Blue Velvet. I love Eraserhead. I mean, I love, um, you know, the shorts, as well. Um, but I think Lost Highway is a, is a, is a film that I, that I have returned to a lot. And I think even though Knives and Skin gets compared to Twin Peaks quite often, you know, I didn't rewatch Twin Peaks until after I had made Knives and Skin. I rewatched the um, first iteration of it, you know, many, many moons ago when it first came out and, and really liked it, but never really thought of it as an influence when I made Knives and Skin. Actually, I would say that River's Edge was more of an inspiration for, for Knives and Skin than Twin Peaks. Wow. Some great choices there that I am definitely not going to argue with. I also love Lost Highway. For the the um, stuff that you wrote and shot for VHS ninety four, is there are there any plans to put out 
what you put out like or what you did in full ever? I don't know. You know, it's an it, it was an interesting process to come into a kind of train that had left the station. And I don't mean that even in terms of the VHS franchise, you know, coming into a franchise that already had, you know, three films, um, you know, completed and released already. But I actually came into the process in like March of 2021. I mean, I was the last director attached because David Bruckner, who was attached originally to direct the wraparound, got pulled away to do Hellraiser. So, you know, the directors were kind of scrambling. Well, I don't know that they were scrambling, um, but it seemed like there was a short period of time. There was a time sensitive issue, let's say, to, to, to attach, you know, a director to deal with the wraparound. And there was already a cast attached and there was already some kind of traces of storyline from the wraparound and some of the other shorts. So I kind of, I inherited like a half a log line and a cast. Um, Got it. And so, you know, I mean, having said that, I just, and I re I rewrote the wraparound. Um, and, uh, I don't, I don't know. I mean, it's, uh, like I said, that kind of train has, has left the station. What I can tell you is that I loved, you know, what I wrote and it is my own intellectual property. And, um, I, I have, um, what I think of as as a productive, um, habit of like recycling old material or like Scenes in films that that either you know don't ever make it into the film because I cut them out at the script at the script phase, or scenes in films that get cu- you know get cut out after we've shot them. And I know I I you know I just recycle those those um, those moments. So what I what I what I wrote and shot for VHS ninety four Holy Hell that did not make it onto the screen certainly will make it into another one of my films. Awesome. Well, I look forward to that. You picked a great topic for this show. We're going to be talking about top five wicked women. Almost all of your work is focused on female experiences. What made you want to cover this kind of list? Both as a uh, a human a human woman <laughs> and, <laughs> and um, a filmmaker and a lover of films. I mean, I don't know that I would go so far to say a cinephile, but I do watch a ton of films and I love you know, I love film history and film theory. Um, the, the, the sort of wicked woman, which for me is a, it can be a very broadly encompassing term, you know, in terms of like difficult women, unlikable female protagonists, right. We could go on and on or like deadly, you know, women, etc. I mean, from, sure. from everything from the kind of emotionally, remote, resistive woman to the kind of, you know, serial killer, torturer woman, both in film and in real life. Honestly, um, I, you know, I find that I find, um, I find that combination really fascinating. I mean, I think that we still live in a, in a culture that likes to think of, um, of women as creators, not destroyers, um, women as, you know, um, emotional, not, you know, like intellectually manipulative. Um, you know, we like to think of women as pretty and likable, not, you know, like abhorrent. (laughs) Um, right. And, you know, like on and on. And so, yeah, both in, in, and I think that honestly, we still live in it. We still live in a culture that in real life has a real problem with, women who are um, powerful and assertive and maybe n- not so 
just easily accommodating. Uh, and then, and, and I think in film, you know, where the average protagonist is supposed to be, you know, likable, if we look to studio standards, God, I love an unlikable, I love an unlikable woman. And um, it's just my favorite, it's my, it's my favorite kind of person to follow in real life. And my favorite kind of character to engage with in cinema. And frankly, my favorite, you know, lead to, to write for my own films. Well, I'm excited to talk about my list. I think I have a fantastic five. I'm sure that you do too. And it's cool that we're both kind of going about this with our own set of criteria. On my list, I wanted to focus on women that knew what they were doing. Like when I think of the word wicked, it's it's evil and it's morally wrong. And I was thinking about those those women that really like they aimed to be that evil. So I left off women who were possessed by other entities. I left off like creatures and, and monsters that might have been female. And that's th those are pretty much my guidelines that I set for myself. I got a real strong top five. I'm sure you do, too. You ready to get to the list? Let's do it. You know what's going to happen? Top five wicked women. And I'm going to go ahead and kick us off here. Uh, is your list in any kind of order? Yeah, I prioritized it. Yeah, I went for, I went for, I actually cheated and I have an honorable mention and then I have five to one. All right. I have some honorable mentions too. And, and <laughs> yeah, <laughs> mine go from like the level of wicked. So my first one here at number five is the least, I guess, uh, impactful on the rest of the world. And it's Regina George from 2004's Mean Girls, played by Rachel McAdams. What's happening? And evil takes a human form in Regina George. I'll be fooled, because she may seem like your typical selfish, backstabbing, slut-faced hoe bag, but in reality, she is so much more than that. She's the queen bee, the star. Those other two are just her little workers. Regina George. How do I even begin to explain Regina George? Regina George is flawless. She has two Fendi purses and a silver Lexus. I hear her hair is insured for $10,000. I hear she does car commercials in Japan. Her favorite movie is Varsity Blues. One time she met John Stamos on a plane. And he told her she was pretty. One time she punched me in the face. It was awesome. I love Rachel McAdams in anything, but she is untopped as Regina George. When it comes to her roles for me, Regina uh, translates to queen in Latin, and that's what she is at this high school. She is the queen bee of North Shore High. Mean Girls is about uh, a girl named Katie that comes to a, a new school. She's been homeschooled, and finally she's going into public school, and she meets Regina George, who runs the Plastics, a group of high school bullies that really don't seem to have minds of their own other than Regina George at the top. She is referred to as fabulous, but evil. And the things that make her so wicked. Number one, she's fueled by social status, and she is going to manipulate people into getting whatever she wants in that status. A really, really well-written scene shows that she has co-opted the master bedroom at her parents' house. Like, her parents don't even live in the master bedroom because she's convinced them to give it to her. She keeps her minions close, her enemies closer as she brings Katie into the fold of the plastics. 
Her hobbies include ruining other people's relationships and ruining people's self-esteem. But it's interesting because she is held in such high regard by others at this high school because they are so afraid of her. She keeps a running diary of these dirty deeds in the burn book, which is pretty famous. And this burn book gets distributed to the entire school, which is then blamed on somebody else because of her. She preys on insecurities, which is later what turns out to be one of her Achilles heels herself. But when I watch Rachel McAdams playing Regina George, it feels like she's a supervillain in training. If you look at all of these supervillains that we see in, like, just for example, Marvel movies, we've got rich, smart, manipulative people who it's only about what she can do next to get her ahead of others. And that is Regina George. Just such a great character. So good, in fact, that they made like a Mean Girls musical based on the movie. Uh, Just a great movie and a great villain, in my opinion. So my number five, Regina George. It sounds like you also are a Regina George fan. Oh my God, Jason, that was so thorough. I feel like I made notes about my top five, but now I'm going to have to be like going back into the, into the archive. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, no doubt. I mean, and, and I, I would say that my number one, and I don't want to spoil it, but I feel like my number one is the, the, the godmother, the godmother to Regina George. Let me just say Oh, that. cool. I'll say, I'll say, I'll say of it, but no doubt, no doubt. I feel like you know, that like, uh, um, that mean girl temperament is, um, yeah, it's, a, uh, it's, it's 100%, uh, you know, wicked women, wicked woman material. <laughs> yes. One of my favorite high school villains of all time, Jennifer reader. What's number five on your list? Okay. So f- number five on my list, speaking of Cronenberg is from possessor, which is a 2020 film by Brandon Cronenberg, which is David's son, uh, Tasia Voss, who is um, uh, like k- kind of one of the most interesting working mom uh, hit 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 man hit woman um, <laughs> yep. of all time. I mean, I think that you know. I mean, I would recommend that everyone see Possessor, but a bit, but I would, but it could be the case that maybe it was um, a sleeper film. It came out in 2020, like I said. Um, Brandon Cronenberg um, directed it. Tasia Voss, who also plays Mandy in Mandy. You know, I mean, she's definitely someone who takes her job very seriously. So on the one hand, I would say that, you know, I loved your criteria in terms of, um, you know, wicked women who are wicked on their on their on their kind of very own terms. But I do feel like I do feel like Tasia has this, um, you know, she's she's a she's a hired uh, kind of virtual um, hitman who's coming unraveled. And I think that. um you know, just, just the fact that we don't have, um, like a multi-gendered way to, for the term hitman, you know, seems, seems important to point out that this is a film where there is a, a, a hitman. And the thing about, you know, this is something that's, that's related to your Regina George, you know, I've done a fair amount of research about women and violence and violent women. And it's, it's very often the case, for instance, that in, um, in real life, that a woman who wants someone else dead will do everything that she can to sort of like remove herself from the direct moment of violence. So she'll start rumors, 
hello, Regina mm-hmm. George, or <laughs> she, she will hire someone to kill someone else. You know, it's like, um, there's that there's, it's very, it's very rare for, um, you, you know, like, uh, in, in real life and, and, and possibly not so much in cinema, but in real life for a woman to actually commit the direct, um, act of, of, um, of violence. But I love that Tasia Voss is, um, is a hit, a hit person, you know, coming, coming unraveled and actually trying to, to, um, connect the parts of her life, which are, you know, one, which is very violent. And two is the kind of unraveling of her marriage and, and her relationship with her child. So it's like, I mean, she, for me is like kind of double whammy in the sense that she's a mother, which my God, it's like, no one wants to think about a wicked mother. Um, (laughs) Or like, there's no way, I mean, and I'm saying this as a mother myself, but there's some sort of magical assumption that once, you know, a woman in particular, you know, becomes a mother, there's no way that she could have anything but like thoughts filled with like flowers and fairies. Um, <laughs> so, so yeah, Tasia Voss of Possessor from 2020 is like, yeah, the wickedest working mom on the planet. That is a great choice and one that I didn't even think about. I love this film. I've talked about it on this show a couple times. And another one of those things that makes Tasia Voss so wicked is that her her job, and again, not to spoil too much, but her job is to, well, it involves killing innocent people mm-hmm. <laughs> at, the, at the end of the day. Like there are innocent people that die and she totally disconnects herself from that. And on... The same in the same company, Jennifer Jason Lee could be considered a real wicked woman, too, because she helps head up that whole operation. No doubt. No doubt. I mean, I that's and I kind of love that about that film that at the at the kind of core of its evil are two, you know, two women, two very controlled, um, you know, intellectual women who have the capacity for like total you know, chaos and destruction, but the scenes of them together are, um, are oddly very serene. You know, I just think that, you know, for someone, for a, for a film that was, you know, conceived of and directed by, um, a man, albeit a Cronenberg, you know, this is, (laughs) this is, this feels like a pretty feminist gesture. Great film and a great pick at number five. That's Possessor from 2020. My number four, it's interesting that you said that in movies a lot of times and in real life, women try to separate themselves from the act of violence. My number four definitely does not. And that is Ellie Driver, a.k.a. California Mountain Snake from 2003's Kill Bill. In Africa, the saying goes, in the bush, an elephant can kill you, a leopard can kill you, and a black mamba can kill you. But only with the mamba. And this has been true in Africa since the dawn of time, is death sure. Hence its handle, death incarnate. Pretty cool, huh? Its neurotoxic venom is one of nature's most effective poisons, acting on the nervous system, causing paralysis. The venom of a black mamba can kill a human being in four hours, if, say, bitten on the ankle or the thumb. However, A bite to the face or torso can bring death from paralysis within 20 minutes. Now you should listen to this because this concerns you. The amount of venom that can be delivered from a single bite can be gargantuan. Mm. You know, I've always liked that word gargantuan. I so rarely have an opportunity to use it in a sentence. (laughs) 
(laughs) (laughs) Ellie Driver is, I I really could have used most of the deadly Viper assassination squad, but I went with Ellie. She is just bad to be bad. And I'll get more into that in a second. Uh, The backstory on Ellie Driver is that originally she worked for Interpol and she was sent on an assignment to apprehend Bill from the, the titular Kill Bill. And when she tracked him down, she fell in love with him, despite him dating who we know as the bride. And he offered her a job as this elite assassin and she accepted just so she could be around him and try and steal him from the bride. She went to this mountaintop to uh, train with a guy named Pai Mei to be his student. And we see in the film, like the flashbacks from the bride's time with Pai Mei, and she's really given it her all in becoming a master at the martial arts. Ellie Driver, not so much. She goes in with a, um, she goes in with like this ego. And at one point she gets her eye pulled out after she calls Pai Mei a miserable old fool. So she's got an eye patch over one eye from that, which she then she she used that as uh, as her catalyst to murder him via poisoning him. She is a, a trained killer who specializes in poison, which we see as she in the very first scene of Kill Bill tries to assassinate the bride while she's in a coma using poison, and is called off. She killed eight people, innocent people, at a wedding just to get at the bride. And then she screws over her own teammates from the the Deadly Viper assassination squad as she kills somebody for a sword. And uh, in in very spectacular fashion, using a snake. Daryl Hannah, in her own quote, says, It's the first villain that I've played in a movie that has absolutely no vulnerability and no innocence. Nothing whatsoever that is likable about her other than she's bad. And I agree, all the other deadly vipers have this empathetic quality. Like, Oren Ishii was actually the first one played by Lucy Liu. She was the first one from Kill Bill that came to my mind. But she's got a horrible past that that has, like, driven her to become the Tokyo Underworld boss. Uh, You know... Ellie Driver doesn't have that. <laughs> there's, there's nothing to like about her. There's nothing in her past that's explained that would make us feel sorry for her. And it's just easy to hate her. Ellie Driver from uh, Kill Bill definitely deserved a spot on my list. And she's at number four here. That's a great pick. That is not on my list, but I think that's a great pick, especially for the fact that like there's no way even to justify her her wickedness, which I think, especially when we're talking about wicked women, right? I just think that that's why I wanted to talk about wicked women, because I think that, again, both in real life and in film, you know, that it's, I think that there's plenty of, um, of studios who would say, oh, gosh, you know, well, maybe not to Quentin Tarantino, but you know, maybe to other (laughs) writers and directors to say, you, you know, she has to have some redeeming quality. And of course, like, I mean, Daryl Hannah is attractive, but I think that, that, it, that like physically attractive, I mean, I think that we could call her like imp- considered empirically like an attractive person. Um, yeah. And so, you know, maybe that's like the only moment where an audience could, um, could connect with her. But again, I just think that I, I like the kind of brazenness of writing a film character uh, that the audience would have a very hard time 
connecting with and they still are into her, you know? And I think that, <laughs> yep. and I think that, that, that is, um, yeah, that's, that's Ellie driver indeed. So good. So good in that role. Number four for you. Okay. Well, maybe this goes without saying, but Jennifer check and Jennifer's body. You were never a good friend. Even when we were little, you used to steal my toys and pour lemonade on my bed. And now I'm meeting your boyfriend. See, at least I'm consistent. Why do you need him? Huh? You could have anybody that you want, Jennifer. So, why Chip? Is it just to tick me off? Or is it because you're just really insecure? I am not insecure, needy. God, that's a joke. How could I ever be insecure? I was the snowflake queen. Yeah. Two years ago, when you were socially relevant. I am still socially relevant. And when you didn't need laxatives to stay skinny. I am going to eat your soul and shit it out, Nikki! Thought you only murdered boys. I go both ways. I would have to say, and it's not just because, like, I'm a Jennifer... <laughs> and, you know, like I um, am a, am a, you know, a vintage whole fan speaking of the song Jennifer's Body, which is the namesake of that or which is how that film was titled. Um, but I think that, you know, this film from, from 2009, which is directed by Karn Kusama. I mean, there's multiple kind of layers for me. This is a film that was written by a woman, um, Diablo Col- um, Cody, um, directed by Karn Kusama. Um, who we all know, you know, for the invitation and destroyer, um, soon to be yellow jackets on Showtime. But, um, and I, I mean, honestly, like re watching this film recently, all I could think about is uh, kind of how Megan Fox is kind of resurfaced as the girlfriend to machine gun Kelly, which let's just, I know I just mentioned it, but I will never mention, <laughs> mention it again. Um, but I think that this is like this. This is um, it's you know this is a film that that is not part of like the genre of horror that I normally like, which is that kind of like co- comedy horror or like right. campy horror. But I think that this one is. Um, I don't think there's there would be any other way to portray um, a sort of you know, serial killer of, of high school boys, um, without it having some sense of tongue in cheek. I mean, it feels like it's in the, it's in the trajectory of Heather's or something like that, you know? Um, and I think that's actually really hard to do from my opinion, to do a really smart sort of, um, satirical, you know, comedy horror. But, you know, again, going back to kind of your own criteria, which I totally respect. And this is one where, you know, Jennifer has been, she's a succubus who's been kind of possessed um, because she was laid out for a virgin's sacrifice, but in fact was not a virgin. (laughs) So like everything kind of um, backfired. But ultimately what I think is, is, really interesting about her character is um, it's actually more the visual filmmaking, you know, to kind of see someone like Megan Fox, who is, um, 
you know, I mean, I, I think that she's attractive, you know, I mean, even back then, you know, or not, I would say not even back then, that sounds terrible. But I think that she's like, you know, one of the hot girl, one of the, well, the well, like the, hosp- the, like the high school hot girl, um, right. who's, who's like, you know, uh, covered in blood and, and, <laughs> you know, like gnashing teeth and, and she's gnarly. I mean, to sort of the, the, to, to imagine the kind of like hot, the hot girl, gnarly girl combination. Um, I don't know that, that feels pretty, pretty interesting. And, and a little side, side note as um, I did a, a, uh, an interview during the, uh, you know, kind of press tour of knives and skin um, to uh, like the bloody disgusting's um, boo crew. And I went to their house in Bur and Burbank and they have that white dress uh, co- covered oh, yeah? in blood from Jennifer's body. Like that, they, they were like, Oh, we just got Jennifer's body, Jennifer's dress. And it was like, so, so rad. Um, so I know where that, I, that Jennifer's dress exists and it, it's, it's in a, it's in a pale stucco house in Burbank. That's all I'll say. But, <laughs> but anyway, yeah, I mean, I think there, that that's, you know, that uh, Jennifer and Jennifer's body is, um, is a kind of, I mean, even though it took, it took until 2009 to create her, she feels kind of like, um, you know, maybe a, a ham fisted kind of feminist icon, but you know, at some, at some point, sometimes you just have to start with the most obvious, which is a girl named Jennifer, uh, killing boys. <laughs> that, that's great criteria for a wicked woman. I agree. I think this is a great pick. I think that there's also something to be said about Megan Fox's prep for this role too, because if I remember correctly, she like really got into character by starving herself beforehand. She stayed out of the sun so that she could be as pale as possible. And I think she's an underrated actress. I think a lot of people think of her as the person who was in Transformers, but she, she's been doing some really cool genre stuff like Till Death, Mm -hmm. which just came out recently. That's really good. And uh, even her smaller roles in like, uh, oh, what was the, this is 40. Mm-hmm. She had a, a smaller role in this is 40 and she killed that role too. I think she's underrated. I think that Jennifer's body is a great choice. It's also one that I put off watching for a long time because I didn't, I, I really didn't like Juno mm-hmm. and I didn't want that blog. I call it blog style dialogue mm-hmm. in the movies I was watching. So it took me a while to watch it, but it's completely different from Juno. So if you're that person like me that didn't like Juno, don't go in thinking Diablo Cody because it doesn't feel like Juno. Right. I agree. Yeah. And I, and I, I agree too. I think that Megan Fox is a really interesting actor and I would love to see more from her. I mean, maybe I'll, I'll, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm in pre-production for, for, uh, some new films. I'm going to give her a call. Oh, you should. That would be great. Um, my number three here is, is this one the one for, yeah, this one's the furthest one back in time on my list. This one's from 1993. The film is called The Crush. I really like you, Adrian. I really like you too. No, I, I mean, as a friend. I mean, let's face it, you're 14, I'm 28. That's a big difference. Whatever you say. No, no. Seriously, Adrian. Now, I want you to know you can count on me. I'll always be a friend, no matter what. Okay? Okay. Like that night up at the lighthouse when we kissed? 
Now that was a mistake, Adrian. Was sneaking in to watch me undress a mistake too? I know that this is probably going to be unfamiliar to a lot of people, but it's the debut of Alicia Silverstone and her character. It's her character has two names and I'll explain why in a second. The original name is Darian Forrester. The second name is Adrian Forrester. So the reason there's two names is because the writer director of the film, Alan Shapiro, he named the character after a real person. He based the script on, some factual events that happened to him and he was forced to change it for TV versions. So I don't know what name is on the Blu-ray, but like if you watched it on TV in the nineties, it would have been Adrian Forrester, but the actual name in theaters was Darian Forrester. So for this, I'm just going to call her Darian. The film is about this 28 year old guy named Nick played by Carrie Elwes. And he moves out to this new city to work for a magazine. And I know that sounds dated, 93, like moving somewhere <laughs> to, to work for a magazine. But he uh, he rents a guest house from the Forrester family. Uh, and, and the dad of the Forrester family is, um, oh, his name's escaping me now, but he plays Red Foreman on that 70s show. Fantastic actor. He moves into this guest house and instantly we're introduced to their 14-year-old daughter, Darian. Again, Alicia Silverstone. And she develops a crush on this older man. And at first, the crush is pretty innocent. He attends a family party. And while he's there, she tries to seduce him. And he tells her, if you were just 10 years older. And she's like, well, what would you do if I was 10 years older? He's just trying to, she's trying to goad him into stuff. And eventually she tries to kiss him. And he stops her advances and he calls it a night. And she's got this innocent, seemingly innocent crush on him. But things take a turn for the worst when Nick starts seeing his coworker named Amy. Some of the things that she does to Nick. So first off, she rewrites one of his articles, which his boss actually likes <laughs> in kind of a, a twist. And then she starts stealing things from his house, like pictures and things like that. She defaces his car, which a- actually happened to Alan Shapiro with the real Darian Forrester. She erases all of his computer disks. Again, 93, you're erasing computer disks. Now I guess it would be like a hard drive or whatever. But um, that was, again, the 90s. All while her parents don't believe a thing when Nick brings this up. Again, things get a little bit darker. Her own friend, Darian's own friend, is going to warn Nick and she finds out about it. So she sabotages her friend's horse saddle when she's on it and she has an accident, in quotes, So she can't tell Nick. And then she gets Amy, Nick's girlfriend, locked in a dark room and empties a wasp's nest into the vents, knowing that she has a severe phobia of wasps. It's like a really terrifying scene. And the cherry on top is that she accuses him of rape by taking a used condom from his trash can and then using that as evidence with the cops. This wasn't her first victim. We find out later on in this in the movie that she killed a camp counselor as well that she had a crush on by once poisoning him. And this person is 14 years old. It's such a cool introduction to Alicia Silverstone, who would go on to obviously be like universally known for clueless. But she was really, really good as this wicked woman darian forrester the youngest on my list and definitely worthy of number three god this is such a good choice 
because it's so, it's honestly, I mean, this is a very, very entertaining film. You know, it's meant to yes, be, it it's, it's meant to be entertaining. It's not meant to kind of like, let's try to intellectually unpack, you know, kind of <laughs> like, um, you know, g- gender roles in, um, you know, society, you know, c- circa, you know, the turn of the, you know, two thousands, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> but I mean, she, um, yeah, this is a really, this is, yeah, because it's meant to be entertaining it, but she's, she's like so deeply maniacal. And yet I think that we can, God, I mean, even as like a person speaking for myself who, you know, I'm a, I'm a, you know, radical feminist in my life and a radical feminist filmmaker, you know, I do really love these characters who, um, you know, kind of who, who, uh, exploit their own, you know, gender, right? Like exploit that kind of the, the fact that our culture is obsessed with youth and beauty among, you know, young women. And, um, and this goes back to even, you know, that kind of first example of Regina George, the sense of wicked women, you know, (laughs) kind of like they, they're, they're not necessarily, they're not going to come in like, um, break into your house and stab you in the face in the middle of the night they're gonna it's like a slow torture <laughs> i mean i wish you could see my face while i'm saying that like i'm also saying that as someone who's a pacifist and you know <laughs> like i do not advocate any kind of violence towards anyone but my god as a as a as a film character no doubt she's um yeah she's I mean, I can't believe that she's only number three, you know, of your five. I can't wait to see who's number <laughs> who's number one because she's definitely, you know, a very, very difficult um, character to like. At the same time, very easy to love, to hate. Oh yeah, kind of hate to like, <laughs> lo- love to hate or hate to love. One of those things. It's it's funny because rewatching the crush. The writer really makes it tough to root for Nick, too. So on one hand, you know that Nick's kind of gotten himself into these situations. But on the other hand, you feel sorry for him. And you feel things for Alicia Silverstone's character at first, too, Mm -hmm. as this 14-year-old, as we've all been freshmen in high school that have had advances spurned. So I I totally understand it. And yes, only number three, because uh, my one and two are just like top of the heap wicked. Oh God, maybe I, maybe I really should have, well, we'll see, we'll see what happens. I mean, we'll see what, we'll see, we'll see where my number three, two, one get us to. It's not a contest, right? We're just sharing. Oh no, not a contest. Yeah. And if we have one of the same ones, that's great. And if we don't, I mean, I'm looking at my honorable mentions. Oh, I've left off like five heavy hitters that could have easily been on my list. Uh Yeah, me too. I li- I cheated a little bit here because I have a, a kind of a tie, but really they're this they're kind of the same character. So my number three is um, there's a, a film from 1983 called The Hunger. Um, oh yeah, with um, Catherine Deneuve and Susan Sarandon and David Bowie, where um, Catherine Deneuve plays a character called Miriam Blaylock, who is in she's described as an immortal, but she's really, you know, a a vampire who has been kind of, uh, she's so flipping stylish. If you, if, if, 
if you or you know your listeners have not watched The Hunger in a while or if ever, God, it's literally the most stylish one one of the most stylish vampire films of all time, and um, and 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 kind of like not just maybe vampire is too even narrow. Like she really plays this immortal who, whose, whose immortality is um, dependent on, you know, her lovers and, and destroying her lovers. And so she's her wickedness. I mean, she's actually someone who I love and who I think that who I, who I love as a, as a wicked woman. I mean, she cannot, she kind of can't help her, her wickedness, you know? I mean, it is, <laughs> it's, it is in her, it is in her nature, but she's nonetheless a vicious, you know, a vicious killer. Um, right. And then my kind of, t- my, my tie to that, it's very similar, is a, is a, a character from a, a film from 1971 called Daughters of Darkness, um, and there is a character, uh, played by, um, uh, Delphine Seyrig, who's a, a Belgian actress, Daughters of Darkness and Daughters of Darkness turns 50 this year, which is significant. But, um, the, the, um, Delphine plays a character named Elizabeth Batory, who's actually based on a real Romanian aristocrat who was who was said to have like slaughtered virgins and you know kind of like devoured their blood bathed in their blood etc my gosh so it it, so kind of daughters so Elizabeth Batory from Daughters of Darkness and Miriam and Miriam Blaylock from The Hunger they they really are both like lady vampires and kind of lesbian lady and vampire lesbian lady vampires which i think that you know that the kind of like to to imagine also to you know i talked about kind of evil mothers but when you talk about kind of like evil lesbians you know that can kind of hit and hit a nerve for for some people but my god it's like these two characters are like the the most irresistible i mean they're 100 percent wicked they're 100% maniacal, unrelenting destroyers of human life, but they are both like gorgeous and like styled within an inch of their life. I mean, if you think about a film that was made in 1971, Daughters of Darkness, 1971, it was shot in in, um, in Belgium and it's I mean, it looks, it, it's like this very chic European film where it, you could, you could, if someone didn't know it was made in 1971, you could, you could show it to some like 19 year old student at um, FIT and they would say like, oh yeah, I think that's the new Gucci collection. I mean, it's very, it's like, it's super, super stylish. And the same thing with The Hunger. I mean, The Hunger has this like great soundtrack by the Bauhaus. It's like, it's in, uh, you know, of course, you know, David Bowie, you know, rest in power. I mean, it's just this super, these are, these are both like really stylish films that are led by vicious blood sucking, immortal lady loving women who, um, my God, I just like, I love to hate to love them both. 
So, <laughs> so there, that was my, there, I don't know, like I, I, maybe I cheated because my number three is a kind of a tie, but they're, but they're very, very similar. And I don't think that, I mean, you know, I think that, uh, you know, there's obviously loads and loads and loads of like vampire and immortal stories as there are Frankenstein stories or, you know, we could go on and on with the kind of classic, the kind of classic vamp or classic monster stories. Um, and, uh, you know, a lady vampire seems to never, um, you know, go out of style, but these two in particular are ones that I just come back to, you know, over and over again. And I think are both kind of sleeper films, you know, I think the daughters of darkness, um, from 71 is not something, I mean, it's, it, it's in English. So anyone who's kind of like, right. you know, Oh, I don't speak French. Like it's, it's an English language film. Um, and the same thing with, um, with the hunger, which I think is a, um, might be, it might've been directed by Tony Scott. It was. Yep. Tony Scott, you know, so just know if you're a Tony Scott fan, you know, this film is like visually like astonishing. They're both they're both brutal films, but are also, gosh, that kind of subtle, slow, super style, stylish storytelling. You know, classic, classic kind of visual cinema. The Hunger, it's been a long time since I've seen The Hunger. I need to rewatch that. And I've actually never seen Daughters of Darkness, although the remastered 4K version of it just came out earlier this year. And that's when I learned about it. So it's never looked better. So if you want to see some female vampire action, Daughters of Darkness, the 4K is out from Blue Underground, I think. Put that disc out. And then The Hunger also has a really, really good Blu-ray. So they're both going to look fantastic. <laughs> okay, my number two. We're getting to like my, my one and two were neck and neck. And I really didn't know who to put first. And there's a reason why I put my number one on top, and I'll get to that after this. But my number two is Amy Dunn from Gone Girl. What can I say about Amy Dunn? I'm going to spoil Gone Girl for those who haven't seen Gone Girl. It's almost 10 years old now. So if you haven't seen it and you still want to see it, pause here, come back, or skip forward five minutes. On their fifth wedding anniversary, writing teacher Nick Dunn, played by Ben Affleck, he comes home. And his wife, Amy, is missing. And she's played by Rosamund Pike, and it is a phenomenal performance. Her disappearance, of course, receives press coverage because she was the topic of her parents' popular Amazing Amy's children's books. And there's a detective named Rhonda that's on the case. She snoops around the house and finds poorly concealed evidence of a struggle. And Nick is all of a sudden the main suspect in this uh, this case and he's interpreted by the media as a sociopath so of course you have like the, the media influence and that commentary as well and as the film unfolds we realize that Nick's not perfect but Amy is this brilliant conniving calculated psychopath who has come up with an elaborate plan to fake her own death and frame her husband Nick for murdering her as punishment for his infidelity she is charming. She manipulates people to make them believe that she's whatever they want her to be. And by her own admission, she has no personality of her own, just a series of masks that she wears according to what will benefit her the most. Some of the terrible things she does in this film is she becomes friends with her pregnant neighbor, who she deems the local idiot. And 
later fakes a pregnancy by stealing that person's urine. She buys a bunch of stuff with Nick's credit card to create debt. She has Nick increase her life insurance. She writes this elaborate bogus diary that like fabricates Nick's abuse towards her and her fears of him murdering her. There's, it's, it's a very elaborate plot. And then we find out that she had other boyfriends that she's done things like this to. We are introduced to one named Tommy O'Hara, who was falsely accused of rape because Amy had planted evidence around his house. And we see on screen how she treats another ex-boyfriend who she reunites with only to frame him for rape and also murder him. Now, I don't know if, if you've read the book Gone Girl, but in the book, her psychosis runs even deeper, going so far as to ruin a truck driver's life for cutting her off. So, you know, some of these trucks have this, how's my driving, call this number on the back of it. And as he cuts her off, she calls that number, gets him fired, and then continues to get him fired from like every job he has for years after. It is insanely evil. And you talk about uh, that person when they have kids, they turn into something else. Well, <laughs> the, the end of this film is kind of a stunner. So... Uh, yeah, Amy Dunn from Gone Girl was so close to being my number one. It was one of the first ones that I thought of when it came to Wicked Women. And uh, again, there's only one reason why my number one is my number one, and I'll get to it soon. But uh, Amy Dunn. Yeah, that's my number two. God! Jason, <laughs> that's such a good... <laughs> God, that's such a good one! Oh, man. I, gosh, I mean, I'll tell you something. I watched that film on a plane oh. from Chicago <laughs> to Berlin um, for, I was, I had a film screening at the Berlin Film Festival. And so I watched it and I had a lot of time to think about that. And I was, you know, I, I was like, I, it's not appropriate to throw stuff on this plane, you know, but I <laughs> <laughs> I want to throw stuff on this plane. And the first time I watched that film, I just couldn't even process it. You know, and that's a film, yeah. that's a film that's actually supposed to also be like really entertaining, but it's so it's, and I, I couldn't agree more with the book and, um, and, um, Jillian Finn, you know, Flynn rather lives here in Chicago. And so, you know, I mean, there's been other, you know, there's, there's, not mythology around sort of like her as a writer, you know, who went on to do sharp objects, which I think is, or no, sharp objects was actually, were actually written before, but you know, I mean, her female characters that she writes are very complicated and so super, super, <laughs> so super interesting. Um, but yeah, I know I couldn't agree more. And I, and I, I, you know, I think as a, you know, as a, as a woman, uh, as a woman person in real life, I feel like I've said that multiple times or that, that sounded clunky coming out this time, but you know, and, and also, so yeah, when did that, when, when did that film come out? 2000 and what? 2012. Okay. 2012. Okay. So you're right. It's almost been 10 years. And, you know, I think that the, I think it, it, it kind of pre dated even the book, the, psychosis if i can say that 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 is um 
kind of Instagram, TikTok, um, mm-hmm. maybe Snapchat, even for adult people and adult women to establish or reestablish or reinvent um, their uh, personality or to uh, in the sense that, you know, Amy Dunn has this, she's idyllic, right? She sort of introduced her. I mean, the, the, the film in the book is, is gone girl, but she talks about the cool girl. Right. Yep. And I, and I think if we back up and we think about the fact that I do feel like as a culture right now in 2021, like on the heels of 2022 with social media, you know, the cool girl is still a thing. I mean, the cool guy is still is a thing too. The cool binary person, whatever. Like being cool in these little 10 second blips of video is um is insanely influential. Right? And so yep. um but what but how you get to that place or what you sacrifice to get there or what you are faking to get there, what is the lie that got you there, you know, is so, is real life. You know, it's not, it's not, it's not make believe. It's not just this kind of like fun thing that you do at the end of your work day. I mean, I, it's gotten, it's gotten weirder and, <laughs> and worser. I don't think, I don't think that worser, more worse. Maybe that's the, maybe that's the term, but I couldn't agree more. I mean, the first time that I saw that, I just was like, oh my gosh, this is so, you know, this is such a, this is a hard thing for me to, um, to digest as a, as a woman. And yet I thought, no, I, 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 I get it. I mean, I don't get it in my life. Like empathetically, I don't get it. That's not who I would ever, what I would ever do or who, who I would ever, who I ever am. But I think that, um, and I'm not justifying any of, you know, Amy Dunn's behavior, but I think that if you of could, course. I think if you could kind of unpack, and I'm sure that many, you know, literary, you know, critics have unpacked that character to think about the, the kind of, um, you know, the, the uh i don't know like h- h- how one how one tries to write centuries of kind of oppression or gaslighting etc i don't know it's a very curious it's a very curious thing and i and i love still though that that also the um you know her husband the the ben affleck character in the film at least is also like wickedly flawed you know like no oh yeah there's no that's what what, what i love about this film and and um, I'm sure that other people don't, but I, I, I love a super complicated ending where you're left with, with like the idea that God, everyone's <laughs> fucked up. I mean, I don't know if I can say that, yeah. but like, yes, even I will say, uh, you know, I'm not giving anything away, but like, God, Doogie Howser's like fucked up in this film. Like everybody's a mess, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, part of her backstory is that she was like her parents had her after a bunch of miscarriages and a bunch of stillborns and they were all named hope Mm -hmm. and she comes out and she's named amy and she's of the impression that she was never meant to be alive in the first place Mm -hmm. i really like your observation on her cool girl monologue because although there are those cool guys and and curl 
cool binary people like the the way that she describes the cool girl is she's a cool girl cool girl is hot cool girl is gay cool girl is fun cool girl never gets angry at her man she only smiles in a chagrin loving manner and then presents her mouth for fucking she likes what he likes so evidently he's a vinyl hipster who loves fetish manga if he likes girls gone wild, she's a mall babe who talks football and endures buffalo wings at Hooters. When I met Nick Dunn, I knew he wanted cool girl. And for him, I'll admit, I was willing to try. I wax stripped my pussy raw. I drank canned beer watching Adam Sandler movies. I ate cold pizza and remained a size two. I blew him, semi-regularly. I lived in the moment. I was fucking game. I think the female experience is entirely different in in that realm. And that monologue is a great example of that. Oh, no doubt. Oh, yeah. yeah. So Gone Girl, just a a terrific performance by Rosamund Pike. Oh, my God. I'm obsessed with her. I just think that she's such an interesting um, actress. I mean, her range is bananas. I really do. And I think that, you know, I mean, I... Uh, I don't know. I kind of love vintage um, Ben Affleck, but I think that he gives a very compelling performance in that. And then you mentioned, um, I'm totally blanking on her name. Maybe it's like Amy Jenkins. Who plays the female detective in that? I think that she's super fantastic. Okay. Number two for you. God. Okay. So this is a film from 19. I'm going to take it back. 1949. Alfred Hitchcock, Alfred Hitchcock directed it. Um, based on a book by Daphne du Maurier, Rebecca. Yes, this is on my honorable mention. No, Mrs. Danvers. Mrs. Danvers, yep. <gasps> God, I'm so glad that you got, you got this too. This is a film that I saw as a little kid. My mother loves this book. My, my mother's 90 at this point. My mom loves this book. She loves this film. When I was, I think, young enough to understand or to sit through a, like 90 minutes of a film. My mom was like, what we're watching Rebecca. Like I was, <laughs> this is one of the first films I think I ever saw. And Mrs. Danvers, Danny Danvers, it's like her superpower is gaslighting. I think I said that before too, you know, I mean, this is a, yeah. this is a beautiful, it's a beautiful book. I would also, again, like, Maybe like Gone Girl, like read this book. These characters are so incredible. But also I would say, I mean, I'm a, a Hitchcock fan anyway, but I think that this is a really special um, Hitchcock film um, with um, uh, Laurence Olivier and um, uh, Olivia de Havilland, I think is, is who plays the second Mrs. De Winter. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, and then Mrs. Danvers, who's the housekeeper, who we understand at some point, um, well, she, she does this intense gaslighting, right? She makes, you know, the second Mrs. De Winter who never has a name. She's only referred to as the second Mrs. De Winter. Um, and she makes her believe that, um, you know, Maxim, her new husband has been obsessed with Rebecca, has never gotten over Rebecca when in fact, Mrs. Danvers was, you know, is, is obsessed with Rebecca and, does the, the the most um 
the most intense kind of um, gaslighting to this poor young, you know, new wife and uh, does it with such, you know, calculation. I mean, just the, just that scene where she, you know, has her wear that dress that's in the painting, you know, and, (laughs) and, uh, oh God, and you watch and, but the, but the, but the, the beauty of this film is that, you know, we, we actually don't, whereas in other even Hitchcock films, you know, we might understand the motive of the most maniacal person, you know, where we might understand, oh, Mrs. Danvers is, um, is up to no good. We really don't understand yet, you know. So we, when we, when we watch, you know, Maxim de Winter respond to, um, you know, Olivia de Havilland, you know, walking into the room with Rebecca, a replica of Rebecca's dress, you know, we are also as mortified as um, as she is. We don't understand until later on that that uh, Mrs. Danvers has set this whole thing up. And that her motivation isn't even, her motivation is not attached to, um, like, she doesn't, she's not in love with Maxim. She's not in love with the second Mr. Like, she was in love with, with Rebecca. Exactly. And I think, and I think that it's also, like, they're... Like, that love is unclear, you know, whether it was just, it was like this... Um, sexual love or romantic love, obsessive love, you know, but nonetheless, this woman who is a housekeeper, who, um, whose role it is to, you know, um, uh, you know, keep, keep, keep the, uh, keep the, the optics, really keep order, keep order, (laughs) keep order and absolutely injects just chaos into, into that, into that world. And oh my gosh, I mean, every Halloween I want to go as Mrs. Danvers for Halloween, and I'm sure that <laughs> no one would, uh, you know, recognize who I was being. But and I, she's she is a character who, you know, not unlike others that you have that you have pointed out, who are kind of like the ultimate mean girl. I think that that's though that's what I was saying. Maybe in the Regina George, like I think that oh yeah, Miss, Mrs. Danvers is like the ultimate, you know, like mean girl. <laughs> She has, she's the, the godmother, grandmother of so, so many mean girls that have, have, have come to, you know, the screen after that. Also, uh, like I said, on my honorable mentions, it was, this is a really, really great movie. If you haven't seen Rebecca, it was nominated for like nine different Oscars. Judith Anderson, who plays Miss Danvers, was nominated for Best Supporting Actress. So definitely seek out Rebecca uh, the second film in a row with a fake pregnancy, too. Yes. Oh, my goodness. So much so. <laughs> okay. Grand finale time for me. And wow, just looking at my list and your list so far, there are some heavy hitters that are not going to make the cut. So we'll have to, to just sprinkle those in during the honorable mentions. My number one, oh, I'm going to spoil a film from 2013 here called Prisoners. So if you haven't seen Prisoners yet, fast forward five minutes. Jennifer Reeder, have you seen Prisoners? Oh my God, I have not. And now I feel so stupid, but my God, I'm so eager to hear this. Okay, this is gonna be this is gonna be tough to talk about. Like I have to spoil some stuff. Is it like a Korean torture film? 
No, this is okay. uh, Denis Villeneuve's uh, film with Jake Gyllenhaal and Hugh Jackman. Oh my gosh! Okay, okay, okay. I haven't seen it, but I but <sighs> I know all. I know everyone you're talking about right now. It's such a great movie, and now I feel bad <laughs> revealing this to you because you haven't seen it. Um, so if you want to like put the headphones to the side for a second, no, you're no, no. welcome to. No, I'm someone who actually has this weird ability to um, forget what someone has told me about a film and be very <laughs> surprised. I'm very serious. Like, I'm like, oh, right. I think Jason told me that was going to happen. Okay. Yeah, no. Lay it, lay it on me. I'm ready. All right. Well, I'm going to start by saying I think Prisoners is a fantastic movie. It is one of the most tense atmospheres that I can remember. Just the color palette that they use, the constant rain it takes place in rural pennsylvania and it looks fantastic i think it was nominated for cinematography at the academy awards it's also very well acted i mean hugh jackman is obviously great gyllenhaal is amazing paul dano's in here he's again fantastic everybody in here is great but it's about these two families that get together on thanksgiving and they have a couple of kids in the families. Two of them are young girls and they always play together. They're like, you know, the dads are best friends and these kids are running around. And when it's time for dinner, they realize that the girls aren't there. The girls have gone missing. And the rest of the film kind of details the, the two fathers quest to get these little girls back. And the fathers suspect that this strange, creepy dude named Alex, who's played by Paul Dano, again, just a really great role for him. They suspect him of being the kidnapper, and with good reason, because he seems to know more than he should about their disappearance. But when the police investigate him, there's no evidence. So they release him to his aunt, Holly Jones, played by Melissa Leo. Only we find out later that she's not his aunt. And here's why Holly Jones leapt over Amy Dunn. It's because of the kid aspect. So Holly Jones, we talked in the very beginning about parents. You think when somebody has a kid, it's all love and unicorn and rainbows. And Holly Jones was like that at one time. Highly religious, great marriage, a great son, and their son died of cancer. Now, unlike some people who deal with, well, there's, there's all kinds of different ways to deal with pain. And Holly Jones' way of dealing with their pain was to blame God for not saving their son. And then she sought to make others feel their pain by kidnapping children to turn their parents into demons and forcing them to lose their minds and their faith. Making children disappear is the war we wage with God. Makes people lose their faith. Turns them into demons like you. Had to slow down since my husband disappeared. I do what I can. Start the car. During that time, only two of the children that she and her husband abducted ended up living. Bob and Alex, both of whom suffered just so much that they couldn't even speak properly. One even commits suicide on screen. And I'm not going to spoil the end of the film, but we see just how evil Melissa Leo's character is. Prisoners from 2013. Once you bring children into it and you willingly kidnap children to torture the parents, that to me leapt over Amy Dunn. And, you know, she still acts like this uh, religious member of society 
just to get more people into her house so that she can make them go missing to never be seen again. Holly Jones from Prisoners. You gotta watch Prisoners. Oh my god, you are blowing my mind. You are blowing (laughs) my mind. I mean, I wish that we could have... I wish that we could have a a conversation once a week about all of these top fives because, (laughs) I mean, like your take on some of these films and characters are awesome. I mean, you could also probably give me a a subject like best um, plants, plants in films. (laughs) And I would be like, okay, this is not so interesting. But God, I got, okay, I got to, I have to see, um, I I feel dumb that I haven't seen Prisoners. I mean, I, but I, I, I have to see it. And honestly, I'm not somebody who even as a parent is, not into watching films where children are used for evil you know i mean i'm absolutely someone who can you know separate you know real life and um the other life and i love films of course like the omen where the child is the evil person you know Mm -hmm. as well um Wow. Okay. Yeah. I, I don't have much to respond. So I might, I might have to just like ch- chime in, you know, once the, once this is, um, you know, I'm not sure why that wouldn't, didn't come across, but you never, you never know. Anyway. So awesome. You know, that sounds fantastic. All right. Grand finale for you. Oh, I don't know. Now I feel like maybe <laughs> my, maybe mine is so maybe mine's like too rote, but I do feel I, I stand by it and I'm going to go with Carrie White from Carrie from 1976 with by you know Brian De Palma. Why you tell me, Ma? <laughs> and God made Eve from the rib of Adam, and it was weak and loosed the raven on the world, and the raven was called sin. Said the raven Why was didn't called you tell sin. Tell me, Mama. Said. No. The raven was called sin. Ooh, woman. And the raven was called sin. And first sin was intercourse. First sin was intercourse. I didn't sin, mama. No. Say it. I didn't sin, mama. First sin was intercourse. First sin was intercourse. First sin was intercourse. And the first sin was intercourse. Mama, I was so scared. I thought I was dying. And the girls, they all laughed at me and threw things at me, And Eve was weak. Say it. No, mama. Eve was weak. No. Eve was weak. No. Eve was weak. Say it. No, mama. Say it. Eve was weak. Eve was weak. Oh, great choice. How would you think this is rote? Well, because I mean, not rote, but because I mean, I I totally appreciate that you were like, I want to go. I think this is actually one of the most interesting conversations I've had in the past 10 years, I'm going to say. I appreciate that. Because I think that for you to approach it as like, I'm I'm not going to think about um, wicked women. I'm going to think about like wicked women as like that that their wickedness coming from their own kind of you know <laughs> D, D, dna and i think i think with the exception of like maybe you know mrs danvers like so many of my wicked women have are are have some some other kind of you know supernatural thing going on although i would like to think that if i had supernatural powers i would use them i i wouldn't necessarily use them exclusively for bad okay so let me just say that but no um 1976 carrie the novel is by stephen king um brian de palma directed the film which by the way i mean i'm a huge brian de palma fan 
Yeah. That that era, that De Palma era blowout, dress to kill, body double. I mean, come on. Yep. Like they're they're all so fantastic. They all kind of you know, embrace the embrace, but also in my in my mind, embrace and kind of expose the kind of male gaze. I mean, Carrie sure. opens up with that kind of this like roving camera through a steamy, you know, girl's locker room with this like whispery kind of um, score. Um, And then we land on, um, you know, Carrie White played by the most brilliant um, Sissy Spacek. Mm -hmm. Um, Just uh, like three years uh, after she did um, Badlands. You know, which is yep, Malik. You know, I it, which is totally brilliant. I mean, there's nothing bad about her character there. She was just simply an accomplice. But I think it's somehow. I think it's like worth noting that within a very short period of time, she was. You know, she worked with two very um, substantial directors in two two very kind of brutal films with very different perspectives. But but I love. I but I but Carrie White is, and I could have also picked. You know. Um, her mother, the Piper Laurie character is someone mm-hmm. who's just um, also kind of obsessed with the idea of being a pure woman and a, 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 a woman without sin, etc. But what I love about, about Carrie White is that she, um, you know, she's, she's a character who is, it's very hard to, to both like or hate her, you know I mean? Cause she's kind of a, she is kind of that like super dorky, uninformed, um, underclassman yep. that, you know, it's easy to pick on, you know? I mean, I just, even in my adult life, sometimes in like the, uh, the, 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 the the line to pick up my kids at school you know sometimes i'm (laughs) i'm like annoyed at the parent where i'm kind of like oh my god like why are you asking so many questions or whatever you know i mean yeah and and so i think that she is this kind of unlikable doormat character i mean even though i find sissy spacek absolutely um beautiful you know in her strawberry hair, her freckleness, her gingerness, you know, I know that she was cast to be the antithesis of the, um, you know, the kind of, um, the Regina George, (laughs) the Regina George, right. Who's like Amy Irving in that film. And, um, God, I'm totally blanking on, which is horrible of me. The woman who plays, um, the other kind of mean girl in that film who, is, is it in, Nancy Allen? Yes, Nancy Allen, who I love. Yeah. So, you know, and of course, like the John Travolta, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but she really, you know, she's meant to 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 be the antithesis of all of that, you know, popular stuff, which even the Betty Buckley gym teacher character has a hard time being kind of like, come on, Carrie, you've got to, you know, like you actually have to kind <laughs> of stand up for yourself. And yep. And and then we see, you know, then we see Carrie in her in her home life where she has this incredibly, you know, maniacal um, mother who's a religious fanatic who's trying to make up for her own, you know, kind of human 
um, shortcomings. And I love that, um, you know, at the end, Carrie uses her telekinetic powers for, you know, mass destruction. And, you know, the book is, the book is even, again, this is another film that was, you know, made from a book and the book, you know, describes the walk from the high school gym where the prom is to Carrie's house as like, there's so much more destruction, you know, where Carrie's like burning every building in sight. And it's like, everything's coming down. And I kind of like, you know, it's, it's sort of the, it's, it's like the ultimate, you know, like an angry teenage girl, you know, um, on her period with the most malevolent telekinetic powers, you know? I mean, I don't know. I just, I think that, again, like, I love your choices so much. I mean, I feel like we both approach this from such a a super awesome, um, you know, perspective. And I definitely went to, you know, kind of, um, you know, wicked women who have an added boost of malevolence. Um, Supernatural malevolence. But, um, God, Carrie White from 1976's, you know, Brian De Palma's Carrie. As of today, she's she's my <laughs> most favorite w- wicked woman. No arguments here. I think this is a great pick. And this is a great pick because we get to see point A to point B in her being that, like, as you were describing her, my first thought is she's clueless. Like, she's this mm-hmm. clueless underclassman to now you're going to get what you fucking deserve. Everybody who's given it to me, I'm giving it right back. And really sometimes in the same way. And uh, yeah, we get to, we, we understand why she is so wicked. Mm-hmm. Great list. What were some of those uh, honorable mentions that didn't make your list that you couldn't put on? Cause I got some heavy hitters. Oh, I mean, again, I feel like mine are maybe, maybe, I don't know. Okay, I'll just say them. So sure. um, another, a, a film from 1975, um, Jean Dillman with, by Chantal Ackerman, the main character, Jean Dillman. This, this is a Belgian film. It's in French. It's a very slow film. It's a three hour film, but the ending is going to blow people away. Um, I also Hang on, might, I, I got to write that one down because I haven't yeah, heard of that one. It's called Jean Dillman, J-E-A-N-N-E, Dillman, D-I-E-L-M-A-N, Jean Dillman by Chantal Ackerman, 1975. Okay, I'm going to watch that one. It's a lesson in OCD, OCD okay. how, how OCD can kind of turn over the top, so to say. Um and I also, I said from 1977, um, the, um, you know, Argento's Suspiria, Madame Blanc, you know, I love mm-hmm. a kind of, again, like, I think my picks are kind of like, I love these over the top women who, who live in the, in a, in, in a kind of surreal world. Um, Asami from 1999's Audition. Oh yeah. That, that was a, that was close to making my honorable mentions uh, you know, too. Um, uh, ginger from the 2000, um, ginger snaps, you know, I love, a. I actually really love a, a kind of a shapeshifter story. Sure. From 2013, uh, a character who's simply called the female from under the skin, you know, was like, um, Scarlett Johansson. Like it's mm-hmm. a, that's a real strange one to figure out 
um, that was one that I watched the first time and I didn't, I was like, wait, what? And then I had to watch it again and, um, you know, kind of go from there. Um, from two, t- from 2015, the witch in the witch, which I actually think is, you know, I mean, it's called the witch. It's about a witch, but you know, we don't really see the witch until the yeah. end and she's always present. And that's, a, I think that's a really, really, um, I think that, you know, Robert Eggers is a, is a, is a, you know, a very, I, I love that, that he has received so much kind of, um, uh, commercial praise. Cause I think that he, at the end of the day is, is a very experimental filmmaker, honestly. Oh yeah. I'm nearing the end, but there was, um, from 2015, uh, the mother in good night, mommy, which is a German film, F- really fantastic. Um, one of the directors, uh, also, um, direct was co co-directed the lodge from, I don't know, what was that? 2019 or something. Um, and you know, uh, from 2016 raw Justine from mm. raw that French film <laughs> where, you know, she just, um, you know, Titan has, is receiving lots and lots of, um, accolades and, you know, that's a, another really lovely film, the love, Witch. um, you know, Elaine Park from the love, Witch is, you know, such a cool, interesting character. Um, Claire from the Nightingale, that's a, a Jennifer Kent film. She's the Baba Duke. And that's, that's not a supernatural film, but that's also a film of a, like a, a re, like a, a really fantastic kind of revenge story that has like very, in my, in, from my perspective, like really interesting kind of like cultural impl- implications. Um, Red from Us. So Lupita Nyong'o, who's the kind of, you know, counter to um, the other, the nicer, you know, character. Um uh, the Katie Maud character from St. Maud, which is, uh, you know, from, from 2020, I thought that was a really beautiful film from, um, from Rose Glass. And, and then I would also say my last one is, um, I know there's too many, maybe, you know, no, bunches, go for but, it. <laughs> and also, um, the girl from, um, a girl walks home alone at night. I mean, I think that that is, um, you know, that's a film that, probably, you know, had a really, really hard time getting made. It's a film that's in black and white. It's in Farsi. Um, it's about, yeah, like a kind of Muslim, you know, vampire in a chador, but it's this cool, super cool vampire film. Um, yeah, that's my, that would be my first kind of, you know, after all of these, my number one honorable mention is the girl from a girl that walks, her walks home alone at night. What about you? Oh, those are so many great suggestions, by the way. St. Maude, I haven't seen yet, and I can't wait to see it. Okay, if I had to make like six through ten, Nurse Ratchet from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Oh my Nest. God, no doubt, no doubt. One of my favorites. You're, you're, yeah. For 100%, yes. That's one. That, there there are a couple that I felt bad leaving off. That was one of them. Annie Wilkes, played by Kathy Bates from Misery, 1990. Yes, of course. So close. Mm-hmm. Alex Forrest, Glenn Close in Fatal Attraction. No doubt, so absolutely. Good. Mm-hmm. This is one that I think is going to be a little less. Well, my last two are some that I think will be lesser known. Peyton Flanders, played by Rebecca De Mornay in The Hand That Rocks the Cradle. Oh, so it's a good. great one. Mm-hmm. And then the last one, and this is a film that I really felt bad leaving off because I think more people need to see it, but it's also not very easy to see. Uh, the character's name is Bridget Gregory, played by Linda Fiorentino in The Last Seduction from 1994. Mm-hmm. She's oh my just God, pure Jason, evil. 
Jason, these are such good examples. I feel like everyone who's listening should, should stop everything they're doing and make plans for the upcoming weekend to fit all of these films into the, <laughs> into the queue. Cause these are all like really great. And none of them will make you feel less interested in either being a woman, being friends with women, you know, uh, they will, they might, you know, uh, make you have actually more respect for your mothers, your aunts, your friends, you know, I mean, these are all such cool examples. I love all of these. And I honestly, this, list I could have, I, you know, I mean, this is my favorite thing to talk about kind of like very challenging women in, in films. And, um, yeah, I could have made, you know, a list of 50, but this was, a, <laughs> this was, this is a super fun conversation. And I love that we both approached it from very different, you know, perspectives. I do too. And I'm glad that you brought that point up. This is, I, I also went into this list thinking, this is a celebration of those wicked women on film. And it's a, it's a topic that I would love to see more of. I would love to see some just more amazing female wicked women on screen. It's just such a, such a cool topic. Jennifer reader, great list. Anything else you want to plug anything else coming that you want to talk about that we should be excited about or anywhere you want to direct people to see more of your work. I've made a bunch of, you know, short films that um, always feature not necessarily wicked women, but I would say difficult, challenging women on my Vimeo page, um, which is just under Jennifer Reader on Vimeo. But you can also find a bunch of the same the same shorts that are on my Vimeo page on the Criterion channel if you want to just feel fancier because you're watching my shorts on the <laughs> Criterion channel. Um, Signature Move is, I think, on Showtime streaming, and Knives and Skin is still on Hulu streaming. Um, VHS 94 is on Shutter streaming. Um, I'm in post-production for a new feature-length film called Night's End, which, oh my gosh, it the star is a man. I've never, it's an adult man. This is the first time I've ever made a film, you know, that with where the protagonist is an adult male and it was awesome and radical. And, um, it's a kind of, a a story about a, a, you know, a kind of a newly single dad who moves into a new apartment in a new town only to find that his new, you know, new digs are, are, um, radically possessed. And, mm. um, and it was great. We shot it here in Chicago with a Chicago cast and crew. Um, and that will be released also on shutter in and sometime in 2022. And I'm in pre-production for a, um, you know, a kind of a, a coming of age, uh, cat, cat people, you know, adaptation. I mean, not an official adaptation, so to say. I mean, I am just saying that it's a, it's a coming of age shapeshifter story, you know, and, um, which again, I think I mentioned that it's a, um, you know, her shapeshifting powers are not, um, towards animals or other, or vampires, but she's got this kind of super, super empathy, you know? And, um, so we're shooting that also here in Chicago in March of, of 2022. So I'm, I'm staying busy and I'm staying, you know, in the, um, in the genre, you know, realm, but putting my own 
kind of sensitive and surreal spin on, you know, on all of it. And uh, gosh, I mean, we're in, um, you know, October. And so I'm watching lots of scary movies and trying to convince my children the, the, the <laughs> like the, the benefits of, um, of young, young Frankenstein and, um, you know, like ET and, you know, yes. all of, all of the kind of, um, classics, but, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm hanging in there and always looking for the next, uh, the next wicked woman, whether it's, um, a friend in real life or a character I'm writing or, um, a character that I need to fall in love with in someone else's film. Fantastic. I will be looking forward to Night's End and yeah, go to the Jennifer Reader, R-E-E-D-E-R dot com for links to everything and uh, go watch her films on streaming. Thank you so much for coming on. This was really a lot of fun and a great topic. I think so, too. Thanks, Jason. Who are your favorite wicked women in film? Let me and Jennifer know on social media at Force5Pod on Twitter and Force5Podcast on Instagram and your comment might just make it to the next show. And if you want a sneak peek at what I've been watching and what I might be reviewing on next week's show, follow me on Letterboxd. Of course, if you like what you heard, please review the show wherever you listen to your podcasts and please tell your friends about the show as well so they can become list nerds too. Intro and outro bumpers today come courtesy of Nate Spears. The top five list bumper was produced by me with music from Audio Binger. Until next time, stay safe, stay sane, go celebrate some wicked women and watch VHS 94 for more Jennifer Reader. Jennifer Reader.